The way I often will have, try to like explain discipline to like give people a bit of a mindset shift is like think of the umbrella term discipline as teaching. And then underneath that umbrella, there's lots of different ways that we can teach. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host. Today, we are focusing our conversation around a mix of things, actually. It's going to be attachment and discipline. And I think that it's important that we discuss both because sometimes I speak to parents who are afraid that if they are firm on boundaries and have consequences or limits, you know, that they won't have as strong relationship with their child. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions around this and that we need to address it. Before I introduce my guests, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please take a moment to subscribe to the Curious Neuron podcast on iTunes or anywhere where you listen to your podcasts and leave a rating and review uh, on iTunes. And I think you're able to do that on Spotify as well. It's really important that you do this. Just take a moment, even just rate it on five stars because it helps the algorithm know that you're enjoying the podcast and that you want more of these episodes. If you do leave a review, take a screenshot of it and send it to me by email, and I will send you a free PDF from our Academy Online, which is all about tantrums, and there's this visual about a meltdown mountain to help your child visualize their emotions and build these emotion regulation skills. So make sure you send me an email, and I'll send you that with absolute pleasure. <laughs> You can also follow Curious Neuron on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron, where I post every single day about a different topic related to child development and, and parenting. And you can email me at info at CuriousNeuron.com. And don't forget that on our website, there is a section, freebie section, where it's all about labs that you can connect with. If you are interested in research, um, there are a few labs and we're trying to build this section of our website so that you could participate in these studies, whether it's about maternal mental health, your child's cognitive skills, there's a lot there. So CuriousNeuron.com. Something that is very difficult for us as parents is, is knowing how to discipline our children and, and where the line is in terms of, you know, making sure that we teach them something new, but also make sure that they know what's right and wrong. Like you don't hit a sibling, right? And I wanted to bring in Dr. Sarah Bren. I met her online through Instagram and she just really focuses on both the parent and the child because we really need to learn a lot about ourselves in order to be able to help our children. And I thought that this uh, question that we have today, um, I thought that she'd be able to answer this for us. And I'm really excited to share this interview with you. All right. So Dr. Sarah Bren is a licensed clinical psychologist and a mom of two whose passion is helping parents find their inner confidence and raise healthy, resilient kids. Dr. Sarah is the host of the podcast Securely Attached and the co-founder of Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Pelham, New York, where she treats parents, children and families. You could visit Sarah Bren on her website at drsarahbren.com. That's Sarah with a H and B-R-E-N. And you can also follow her on Instagram at Dr. Sarah Bren. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm definitely bringing her back. Let me know if you do want us to focus on attachment. Send me DM on Instagram or email me again at info at Kirsten.com. See you on the other side. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I, you know, we connected a couple months ago and had a live and I immediately knew that we had to talk again on the <laughs> podcast because when it comes to attachment and tantrums and discipline and compliance and all of that, you cover it so well on your Instagram feed. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. I'm so glad we connected because I mm -hmm. love the work that you do so Thank much. You. Thank you. Today, we're going to merge two topics and I am excited to dive into it because I know that this is a question that pops up in, in our minds. You know, I find that when it comes to parenting styles, the, the pendulum has swung a little bit far towards the like warmth and connection with our kids. And we forget that we need to balance that with discipline and, and limits and boundaries. So today yeah. we're going to talk about that. And 
In addition to that, I think that parents often feel that maybe if I discipline my child too much or where is the line of too much, like how do I do this, that my child won't like me because perhaps I could speak from experience. We had parents who did that (laughs) and we're very strong on the discipline part and not strong in the relationship part. And we want that relationship with our kids. So today's discussion uh, will be focused on us answering the question, how can we discipline our kids while maintaining a good relationship with them? And um, that's everything that you talk about on your on your feed. Yes, I'm I'm very passionate about effective discipline mm. merging with like really secure attachment relationships because I think they are very much aligned actually. If we understand and I think effective being the keyword. Like yeah. if we understand how to do it then we can absolutely preserve the relationship. And in fact, I believe very strongly that not disciplining our children, and I want to define discipline because it's very misunderstood this word, but like not disciplining our children, it's like you can't go too extreme in any one direction, right? Mm -hmm. If you do not have clear expectations and follow through and boundaries and discipline with our children, it's that can make kids very anxious and it can make them really like not know where the lines are. And that's not comfortable for kids. Obviously, extremely punitive discipline is not optimal either because Mm -hmm. we're not really teaching much other than I'm big and you're small, and that can certainly affect the relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's about finding that sweet little middle space of warmth and high expectations and clear follow through. How about we start with the definition so that we're all on the same page for that? And I think there's a word you just said that was key, right? The teaching part. So how do you define uh, discipline? Yeah. So it's really simple. It means to teach. There you go. <laughs> it's not about punishment. It's not like the way I often will have, try to like explain discipline to like give people a bit of a mindset shift is like think of the umbrella term discipline as teaching. Mm-hmm. And then underneath that umbrella, there's lots of different ways that we can teach, right? We can teach through punishment. We can teach through getting low and close and explaining expectations in a warm way. We can teach through practice. Mm. We can teach through modeling. We can teach through, you know, many different ways. And how we choose to do it is going to change moment to moment, depending on our child's capacity to take in new information. That's um, which is a, you know, a function of the brain, which is why I love talking to you because <laughs> I love, I love how much you like champion. <laughs> Brain science. And, you know, the more that we understand our child from that perspective, the more we can offer them what they need, right? So just thinking about what you described right now when it comes to discipline, right off the bat, knowing that you cannot discipline a child who's 18 months or two years old the same way that you would a seven or eight-year-old. How do we, as parents who might not have this background, start to understand disappointing to like our child's level of development? Right. So I think when we start to think of discipline as teaching and not punishment, which I think colloquially parents often understandably merge the concept of discipline and punishment. They think that they're synonymous and they're not, you know, that punishment is a type of discipline mm-hmm. and it does teach something, but it might not be what we're trying to teach. Right. First, we have to decide what is it that I want my child to learn in this moment. Mm. Usually most parents would say, I want my child to learn how to engage in pro-social behaviors. I would like my child to learn how to, you know, stop when I say stop, hit the brakes, right? Hit the gas, do when I ask them to do something, cooperate. I want my kid to be kind to other kids and to other people and show respect. I want Mm -hmm. my kid. So basically we're saying like, I want my kid to have empathy. I want my kid to be able to be in control of their behaviors, right? All of those are great things we want for our kids. Of course, we want those things for our kids. So we then we have to kind of reverse engineer. If I want my child to learn those things, how do I teach that? Yeah. We can get a kid to stop a behavior. If that's the only thing that I want my child to do in the moment is just stop a behavior. Um, punishment's pretty good for that, right? Punishment, we know from like punishment and rewards, like, you know, behaviorism, Pavlov, mm-hmm. Skinner, all that stuff. Like if we... If we punish, which means we either like put a um, a non-pleasant stimulus after a behavior, like I give you a timeout or mm-hmm. I 
or we remove a pleasant stimulus, I take your iPad away, yep. um, we will reduce the frequency of that behavior. Mm-hmm. So, okay, great. We can, we can stop a behavior with punishment. We could increase behaviors with rewards. We know that that is true, yep. but what are we teaching? We're teaching a child a very limited set of skills, yeah. which is don't show me that behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of it. And so a lot of times what we see is a really kind of short half-life of that learning, right? They're not able to generalize it. Yeah, no, sorry, because there's always something also beneath that behavior as well, which comes down to the learning part. And so that's kind of what I try to help parents understand. It's like, if you really want your child to learn something like, let's say empathy, let's Mm say, I don't want my child, I want my child to be able to share something. Really what I'm saying is I want them to be able to, you know, imagine the other person's position and, be generous with their possessions and be kind. Right. So if I punish a kid for not sharing, or if I, you know, make them share in that moment, I'm teaching them a behavior, but I'm not necessarily teaching them the underlying emotional skill set, right. To, you know, have that reflective capacity to say, what is it? What does this person want and why? And also what do I want in this moment Mm -hmm. and why? And can I honor that for myself? So a lot of times we have to sort of look under the hood a bit and it's not just about changing the behaviors. It's kind of a bigger task. And it's tricky because parents, you know, we also want our kids to share and we want our kids to behave and we want our kids not to hit. Of course we want these things, but I think we, we can't, always address just the behavior. Like if our kid is hitting, you kind of have to say like, why, why might they be feeling what they are feeling that is leading to the impulse to hit and also where their brain development is. Mm -hmm. Can my child inhibit the impulse to hit when they are a small Mm -hmm. child whose frontal lobes become kind of inaccessible to them very easily? Exactly. It's not always possible. You know, I'm thinking of the parent who's perhaps listening to this and thinking, how does this apply to a child who's whining all the time or who's having all these tantrums all the time? And they might not see that as a child needing tools. Um, They might not see that as a teaching moment. It's just a child whining and it's frustrating and I'm annoyed right now and I need to stop it. So and and the way that I view that, obviously, in, in the same lens as you do, is this emotion regulation, you know, area and that's a huge thing because as a parent, I first need to regulate myself because if my child is crying or whining, I might want to lose it automatically. And there's a there's a lot there. So with everything that you just said now, how would that apply to that type of behavior or emotions? Right. So I think when we, again, like we kind of, and this is sort of something that I, I think is fundamental. And I sort of try to teach parents this before we get into a lot of that's, you know, what do we do with a tantrum? Well, before we can really address the tantrum, like parents really need to know what is happening in their mm-hmm. child's brain and body when they're having a tantrum. They need to understand sort of a basic concept of like brain science and the nervous system, right? When a child is having a tantrum, they are in a state of fight or flight, mm-hmm. right? They're which means that the the thinking part of their brain, their prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for inhibiting an impulse, which means stopping a behavior, like stopping them, hitting the brakes, Mm -hmm. um, the part of their brain that's responsible for problem solving, for asking for what they need, for um, just critical thinking, being reasonable or Mm -hmm. rational, all that stuff's offline. What's going on with the brain is it's like a fire alarm gets pulled. If I perceive a threat, my my amygdala pulls a fire alarm and my nervous system moves into a, a state of fight or flight so that I can keep myself safe. It's a survival mode. It's, mm. it's an evolutionarily important thing for us to be able to go into fight or flight. But the problem is, is our brains haven't quite developed like this is a very ancient evolutionarily based like thing from our like brains. Mm. And so our brains don't actually know the difference between like a tiger staring me down and my popsicle fell on the floor and I'm really upset about it. <laughs> That's like what I was that- going to bring up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like the cup or giving a kid a, a cup that they ask for the right color. They ask for blue, you give them blue and they lose it. <laughs> like right, they're not right. in danger. We we don't see it from their, the perspective of their brain, but their brain sees it that way. Right. And that's super important because, because this is why parents understandably get super frustrated because yeah. <laughs> we're like, 
I, in my very mature adult brain, <laughs> see nothing dangerous here. Exactly. Why are you freaking out? <laughs> like, it's not rational. It's not logical. And you're right. It is not. And a two-year-old, four-year-old, even eight-year-old, even 18-year-old brain at times is not able to access that rational thinking part of their brain. Even adults can't always access yeah, our that. rational thinking. We've we all have had moments. too. Yes, exactly. I know. Certainly. I love it. It's true. Yes. <laughs> not that I love that we do it, but I love that we're, we understand that it can happen to anybody. It's just right. that kids have it very often. Yes, we all are working with the same equipment, mm -hmm. right? Our mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex goes offline when our amygdala pulls the threat fire alarm. That's what happens. And our bodies goes in, go into fight or flight. It just happens more frequently with kids. It happens at a much more intense, in a much more intense way, because the extent of their dysregulation is very all-consuming yeah. and it takes them longer to come back down because they have not yet developed the kind of robust coping skills and sort of critical thinking that we have had the opportunity to as grown-ups. Yeah. And so this goes back to the idea of discipline being about teaching. Mm. If ultimately we want our child to be able to hit the brakes when we need them to hit the brakes, when we need our child to calm their bodies down when they're upset to ask for what they need instead of whining for what they need. Mm. We have to teach that. And we teach that when the brain is able to learn, which is in the calm, connected yes. moments. <laughs> yes. Not it's not in. <laughs> no. It's not when the popsicle has fallen on the floor and they're screaming or when they're holding the cup that they asked for and they are melting down because they wanted the other cup mm -hmm. that they didn't ask for. Like that's not the time to then say, let me teach you how to calm your body down. <laughs> yeah. Like mm -hmm. it won't. The part of their brain for learning is also the part that's offline. Yeah. Same and for so, adults. Same for adults. Totally. If I'm if I'm upset about something, I don't want to be. Sometimes I don't want to be hugged. I don't want to be consoled. I just want to be present in that emotion. Let me be angry, and I'll come back when I'm ready. Like that's me. That's yeah. As an adult, right? How many times? God bless. I love my husband so much. <laughs> But when I come to him with a problem and he wants to problem solve and I'm like, I didn't no. want you to problem yeah. solve. I just wanted you to say, oh, that's so hard. Yes, exactly. I know. I, I know. But same thing. But it's so, again, it just goes back to, to showing that our brains are the same and they're just developing those skills and they will experience the same things that we do just to a higher frequency. And, and, and that's yes. normal. And then also want to be clear, I'm not saying that we let them whine in perpetuity and we don't give them any strategies. I'm not saying that we allow them to throw that cup that they mm -hmm. didn't want no, on the yeah. floor and scream at you. Like we can also create what I like to call like the edges. I want my kid to know where the edges are, hmm. where the behavior crosses a line that I'm going to say is my, it's my job in this moment to either keep you safe, to keep you healthy to move you through the schedule of the day. You know, if you're doing something that interferes with my ability to do that part of my job, I'm going to stop you. Right. And there's where this idea of like discipline is fostering secure relationships. My child knows where the edges are in our relationship and in the world. They feel safe. Mm -hmm. They feel contained. They trust that I am going to step in and keep them safe. Mm. I love that visual. And I, and I, I mean, it's, it's, I sort of take it from therapy, frankly. I mean, I'm a clinical psychologist. I started not doing parenting support, but mm -hmm. doing therapy with adults with sort of chronic trauma histories, like really chronic childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work in therapy, um, we talk about in therapy, we talk about the frame, the frame of therapy and how the relationship, the therapeutic relationship helps to create this. It, it has a frame and, and the patient knows where those edges of that frame are mm. and that that's really important. It's why like you have a weekly session at the same time and it's in the same place. And, and, you know, we're, there's a lot of consistency in the therapeutic relationship. You know, you're not, it's not a, it's not a two-way relationship in the way that most social relationships are. Like mm. as a therapist, I'm not telling you about my day. I'm mm. You know, I'm here to talk about your day or your life. And there's the frame, right? The, it's clear. It's very clear what can be expected by the patient with the therapist. And similarly with parents, like obviously it's not a therapeutic relationship, a mother-child or, a you know, a parent-child relationship. 
you're not the child's therapist, but you are in a way holding this frame for them. You want them to know what they can expect from you. Mm -hmm. You want to be consistent. If you say no to something, you want them to trust that no. You want to have that follow through. It doesn't have to be um, very like, you know, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be devoid of warmth. Mm, I can say, no, I'm not going to let you throw that cup on the floor. If you're throwing the cups, we're going to have to put the cups away and we'll go, we'll, we'll have, we'll try to have a drink again in a little bit. Mm. And then I'm going to actually take the cup despite maybe a full-blown meltdown mm-hmm. and protest. And then, because that's them showing me, I don't like that you're setting this limit. Great. I'm okay with my kid communicating to me that they don't like something. It's not going to change me falling through on the limit. True. It's not going to make me agitate. I mean, it does sometimes make me Probably. agitated, but it's <laughs> I'm going to try to contain that agitation. I'm trying to self-regulate, try to remind myself this is the way that they are showing me that they're upset with this decision I'm making. It's still my job to make this decision. Keep going. You got yeah. this, right? Like yeah. I coach myself through this sometimes. I have to, mm-hmm. and I have two toddlers. I have to do this a lot. Oh. Like, <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wonder if a parent who's listening right now. So I, I've spoken to parents that are afraid their child won't like them or that they'll break that bond or relationship if they discipline too much and have too many rules in the home. But then I remember speaking to a parent that had told me my child is in control of the house (laughs) because they had no rules and boundaries and the relationship actually got better as the parent introduced boundaries slowly, you know, in the home. Um, What would you say to a parent who who does have that fear that if they start with the consequences and will get pushback, obviously, because the child won't like that, how do we start introducing those boundaries while also addressing the, the fears that we have in our head regarding the relationship? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to know. And I think chances are if a parent is fearful that if they set a boundary and their kid doesn't like the boundary, that their kid won't like them, chances are they experience sort of like inconsistent boundaries or confusing boundaries as a kid. Right. And maybe it was that if I have anger, I'm told that that's personal. Right. Like, you know, if if you share anger with a parent and your parent gets very, very mad at you for being angry. You're going to learn, okay, anger is not really that safe. It's a pretty dangerous feeling, right? I work a lot with families around the issues of anger and shame and fear and all these really uncomfortable, challenging feelings and trying to help parents recognize the feeling itself is safe. Our children can be angry. Mm -hmm. They can be angry at a decision that we make. They can be angry with us and that's safe. It's not dangerous. And I think it's the fear that it's dangerous that actually ultimately leads to all of these really confusing and, and like, you know, uncertain situations where a child feels really way too uncomfortably powerful in the relationship. That's actually much more challenging for the relationship, Mm. for the, for the trust, right? Our kid can be angry with us and still trust us. Mm. Those are not mutually exclusive experiences for a child or for any human being. Um, And the more that we as parents can get comfortable in the fact that our children can safely express to us their anger, their sadness, their fear, and and we don't have to take that in as this personal attack on like the integrity of our relationship, Mm -hmm. that we can hold space for our kids to have these feelings and say like, oh, you're really mad. You're really mad. I took that cup away. I get it. I'm not giving the cup back. (laughs) I'm accepting that they're angry. Yeah. I'm not worrying that our relationship is now doomed. I'm just holding space for their anger and I'm modeling for them this trust in our relationship where it will be, we will be just fine. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not getting mad at you for your feelings. I'm not going to make you go away from me. I'm not, you know, we're just, we're moving on. We, We can move through this. And also, I think this idea, I think this is very important that like when a child feels more powerful than the parent, that is very existentially terrifying for a kid. Now, they're not going to be able to say to you like, but how will you keep me safe in this world if you are going, you know, if I'm more in charge than you? They don't have that like like conscious narrative in their head, mm-hmm. but kind of in like a bodily way. Our kids know that they are dependent on us for survival, sort of innately in their bodies you know, infants show this, right? They 
they we are biologically kind of hardwired to form this secure attachment mm-hmm. with these caregivers or form an attachment with our caregivers um, to keep us in survival. And we will we will innately take an insecure attachment if that means that you'll keep us safe. We just mm-hmm. we know that that can actually have like some effects on mental wellness down the line, but it's still, they'll prefer anyone would prefer an attachment over no attachment because that means like annihilation Mm. essentially. And that's attachment theory. That's it, by the way. Like, I think that people really don't understand a lot of like, there's a lot of misconceptions about what attachment theory is. Attachment theory is very simple. We as human beings are biologically hardwired to form an attachment to the people in our lives who are going to keep us alive, right? Typically our primary caregivers are parents. Um, And then as we get older, we have attachments with other types of relationships, but the, the, the blueprint that's created in those early attachment relationships tend to be recreated. You know, we use that blueprint to anticipate all future relationships. That's attachment theory. That's it. I think it's another topic that the pen, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. <laughs> um, you know, I think back to, there was an Instagram account. I think it was last week. I forget who it was, but they cover attachment as well. And they were out and about with their newborn baby in a stroller. I don't remember who it was <sighs> instead of having them in the baby carrier. Oh, it's babies and brains. Yes. Is- but somebody wrote to her and said, but you talk about attachment. Why is your child in a stroller? And I think that's a perfect example of what, how society has misunderstood or misinterpreted what attachment is. Yeah. 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 And I think it's really stressful for parents. Yes. Because parents yeah. then think I am going to damage my child's attachment to me or the security of that relationship. If I have my own needs, if yeah. I yes. am separate from them, yes. if I don't meet all their needs. And in fact, meeting every single one of our child's needs for proximity to us does not actually create a secure attachment. It creates codependency and enmeshment, mm-hmm. right? That's actually not optimal. We talk about a lot of, in psychology, the idea of the good enough parent. It's not like a, oh man, I can't be perfect. So I guess I'll settle for good enough. <laughs> you know, it's, that's not what it means. Yeah. It's actually optimal. It is the goal. Being good enough is the goal because if we tr- if we were to meet every single one of our child's needs and always get it right, our child actually would not have a very important part of their identity development occur. It's inevitable misattunements mm-hmm. because we absolutely cannot be perfectly attuned to our children. But it's the inevitable misattunements, like you know, my baby's crying and I, I, you know, feed them, but really they were tired. Mm, or, yeah. you know, I, they're, they were hot, but I put a sweater on them because I was, you know, whatever, like we're going to mess it up. Mm. They needed me and I wasn't there. Mm. That happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when our kid's born, the, the lines between where I end and where my parent begins is mm. blurry. Like right. it's amorphous, yeah. right? I don't yeah. really know the difference. It's all just kind of like a mess of like touch, right. And light and sound. But over time, as that child has these experience of misattunement with the caregiver, those are the, that's the buds, the little beginning ripples of mm. the sense of self, right? Oh, we are two separate people. I am me and mom is mom. Mm. We're not, we are not merged. And the space that kind of evolves from that, you know, this repeated realization, oh, wait, I am me and mom is mom. I'm me and I, they are different. Mm. That's where the sense of self develops. And also the space that's now emerging between me and this other person, that's the relationship. That's the attachment relationship. And when we talk about attachment styles, people hear the word secure attachment, insecure attachment, avoidant attachment, anxious, all that stuff. What we're talking about is the quality of that relationship, Mm -hmm. the quality of that attachment bond. Everybody, almost every single human being will have an attachment bond with their caregivers. The question that we're looking at in psychology is how secure is that attachment? And when I say secure, I mean, how much do I trust that this person is going to keep me safe? Hmm. And that sense of trust can develop with lots of misattunements. We do not have to get it right all the time for us to develop that sense of trust. We actually, the research shows we have to get it right about anywhere between 
30% of the time and like 95% of the time. There's wow, a that's a huge range. I yeah. know. But I hope that settles new parents who are listening, right? Because we're so afraid as new parents. And I remember being a first parent a couple of years ago where it's like you just want to make sure that you do you do everything right. And you're afraid that, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom and your baby's crying, that like, I'm going to mess it all up, you know? And that's the fear of a new parent or a new mom. Um, and I think the way that you've just painted this picture of what we have to be um, mindful of helps us kind of bring us back to what you know what's important I know that there are lots of parents who are probably going to ask like okay so now what give me details <laughs> I like <laughs> when I, I get the big picture of this now but wh- where besides the consistency of that like misattunement what does that look like in, in terms of a newborn life with their their caregiver right I think a lot of it is actually us regulating our ourselves mm. really like can we be a calm and consistent presence for our child doesn't mean we need to meet all their needs all the time it doesn't mean that we need to make them happy all the time that's a huge myth you know mm-hmm. our kid and that i think goes back to that you know the, the parent that's afraid to set the boundary because their yeah. kids will be upset with them mm. upset anger it's totally fine. Happiness is not the goal. We do not need our children, nor do we want our children to experience happiness at all times. That sure. sets them up for a very unrealistic expectation of what life will feel like and a deficit in tolerating the natural uncomfortable emotions that come with life. I want my children to experience the entire spectrum of emotions yeah. and know every one of those feelings is safe. And mom is consistent. Mm. Mom doesn't change, not drastically at least. We fluctuate because we're also human beings. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I'm going to be less patient with certain True. feelings, right? Because I'm also human and maybe I'm hungry or tired or cranky or whatever. Yeah. Again, 30% of the time, <laughs> we got to get this right 30% of the time, That's like not number. all the time. But yeah. typically our child needs to consistently sense our cons- our calm presence in the face of their fluctuations, Mm. their fluctuations in emotions, their fluctuations in need states, all that stuff. We want to be sort of this like grounded rock for them. What we call in attachment theory, a secure base. Mm. The parent needs to be a secure base for the child to then say, I've got this rock that I come back to and I can weave again, and then I come back and I refuel, and then I can go again, and I come back and I refuel. And you see this, like, for example, if you are a parent on the playground, you will see Secure Base in action. Watch your child next time you're at the playground and watch how they will come to you, and then they'll go off and play. And then after a little while, the the pressure of the separation will mount, and they'll need to come back and just check in. And then they go back out again and then they come back in and then they go back out and you'll see this, just watch other kids do it with their caregivers. And sometimes it's not a physical check-in. Sometimes they just need to look up and see it. You're there and then they can keep playing, but that's your functioning as a secure base when your child is doing that. Mm-hmm. And that secure base is actually the thing. It's like this anchor that they have over here that allows them to feel safe. Mm-hmm. They're tethered to this anchor and it allows them to feel safe to go off explore, take risks, learn new Mm -hmm. things, become this like full human being. Mm -hmm. And they can't do that if they don't know the rock is there. They don't know the anchor is there. If they don't feel that the anchor is there, they won't leave. Get it. Yeah. They get clingy. They get scared. They, they separation is hard. And I I say this because I want to be very clear. Separation anxiety is a developmentally typical and normal thing. Kids naturally experience it. I'm not talking about separation anxiety. I'm talking about like more of like a, in general, like a child does not feel like they can exist apart from the parents. Like they're not sure that they're going to be there when they get back. That's Mm. different than like, our kids clinging to us at daycare drop-off. That's normal, right? Um, And it's part of the development of that secure attachment, right? Like it kind of means that like it, I'm I'm biologically hardwired to stay close to you. Mm. I don't want to separate. Um, And then when we do separate because we have to, because it's part of life, it's the reuniting that experience like, okay, you were here this whole time. You're here. You're back. You come back. I come back. We reunite and it's mm-hmm. safe again. That knowledge then allows me to go away again and come back, go away and come back. It's a learning experience. Kids have to learn like the separations in the beginning. And it could be for a long time till they really internalize that you don't, you come back. 
that's very different than like an anxious attachment style, right? That's not the same thing. I'm thinking of a parent now, again, I I always try to put myself in their mindsets because I think we overthink sometimes and we, we, um, not micromanage, but are afraid of the little micro moments. And and you've been talking about the big picture. Yes. So, you know, I would have as a worry now as a parent wondering what's right and what's wrong. You spoke about the child who's kind of stuck to the parent, but that anxiety, that sort of separation anxiety is normal. So as a parent, how do I evaluate my life right now and my relationship with my child or my attachment with my child? And know if it's something I need to work on and can I work on it or is, you know, is whatever happened happened and I can't change it. Well, we definitely can work on it because our, our child's sense of security and trust with us is something that is movable, Mm -hmm. right? Like we can increase it. We can decrease it, right? Like we, if we, if something really challenging happens, we can like, that can damage their trust in us. And so, and we can repair that. So I want to make every parent really clear that our attachment styles are not fixed. So for example, if I'm someone who had a really challenging relationship uh, with my early attachment figures mm-hmm. and I have an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style or some type of an insecure attachment style, that does not mean that I am doomed to have uh, insecure, that my child will have an insecure attachment style. That is not true. We do know that um, attachment styles can be passed on mm. called this intergenerational transmission of attachment style. Um, and that is a thing and it's, you know, very typical, but that doesn't like things like therapy, things like corrective emotional experiences, things like shifting, meaningfully shifting the way that you approach your relationship with your child. These things can change and improve an attachment relationship, right? Like, um, Parent-infant dyadic therapy is very common to help people improve attachment relationships. What is that? It's a type of therapy very often with a mother and a child, but you can do it with a father and a child or any parent and a child. Um, but typically it's like, it's kind of like couples therapy, but for the parent and the mm. child. <laughs> and it's very usually, um, it gets, the focus is on increasing parental attunement and parental self-regulation in the exchange, interpersonal exchange with the child. Mm. Um, It's very often done when there's like, for example, if a parent has postpartum depression Mm. after giving birth to their child, that's often a type of treatment that we would do to help that parent kind of develop that bond with the baby. Um, Because oftentimes when you have postpartum depression, feeling connected to your child is very difficult. Um, and so dyadic therapy is really common there, but you know, you can do it with older children as well. Eventually we refer to it more as family therapy, but it's really dyadic work. And so, but yes, it's movable and that's more like in extreme situations. Right. But, but typically, and I, and I, I'm always kind of mindful of like, I want to kind of paint the whole picture, but then I also want to kind of ground parents. Yeah. Most parents listening to this podcast episode probably have a pretty solid relationship with their kid. One, they're listening to your podcast, which means they're pretty like they're thinking about this mm-hmm. stuff. And chances are, if you're thinking about this stuff, you are tuned into your kid True. at least enough of the time yeah. that you're probably doing a pretty good job. And so I just, I don't know. I feel like it's always this balancing act of like giving people the, the, you know, paint the whole picture, mm-hmm. but also reminding people that, you know, think of a bell curve. Most people are in the middle of that bell curve. Most people are developing a secure attachment with their child. And if they're feeling like they're not, they can always reach out to a psychologist that specializes in attachment, um, you know, or other clinicians that's, you know, other people that specialize in this to get help mm-hmm. and even just get an assessment, you know, like um, to just try to like give them tools mm-hmm. for, and a lot, I mean, really when I work with families who have challenging relationships with their kids or their kids are having really, you know, big behavioral issues. A lot of times it's, I do parenting work, even though I'm, the child is my patient, the child's the identified patient. I'm working with the parents almost exclusively sometimes because they have a stronger relationship with their kid. I could see a child for 45 minutes a week and do play therapy with them or do therapy with them. But at the end of the day, like the parent's for very young kids, the parents spend such a profound amount of time with them and the child's already attached to them. They already have that trust in that relationship. And, um, 
that sense of safety and attunement with their parents. And so it's like, I think it's usually often more effective for me to work with the parents, give the parents the tools and have the parents kind of subtly shift the way that they're interacting with their child. I think it just, it's a, has a much more profound effect Mm -hmm. than me seeing a child for, you know, 45 minutes a week. That's usually at a very young age. Like question, questions I receive from parents often are around that. Like my child's having a lot of tantrums. It could be an 18 month old or a four year old. And how do I stop those tantrums? But it comes back to our behavior and how we respond to that and how we regulate. And it's hard sometimes to, as I think as a parent, because you want a quick fix. Just tell me what to do. Yeah. I want to end them. Yeah. They're frustrating. They're, you know, um, but we can't. It's a lot of the work. A lot of the work ends up being back on us. And yes, it's not easy. It, it's not easy. And actually, I, I like created a course to try to answer that question for people because like, Yes, I do work with a lot of parents one-on-one about tantrums, but I'm only one person and I can only see so many people in a week. Yeah. And so I basically took um, sort of like the first couple sessions that I tend to do in therapy with families and I put it into like a digital course so that I'm giving people, it's like six modules. It's like a relatively quick thing. You could do it in a day, um, but it's like broken down into sort of six pieces. One is the neuropsychology mm-hmm. piece, like what is actually happening in my child's brain and body when they're having a tantrum. So I can understand it. Mm. And when we know what's going on, one, we take it less personally Mm -hmm. and two, so we could stay calmer. And two, we just, we can be more effective in our interventions. Cause if I know what the problem is, I'm going to be more effective in solving it instead of just sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall. (laughs) But two, then we go over self-regulation. That's like the second step in the course. And then I talk about how you do that. And then then we talk about co-regulation, which is how do I help my child get back into this place of calm and safety? Mm. And then we talk about prevention um, because that's like, what do you do before a tantrum even starts? And then we talk about consequences and discipline, which is what do you do after the tantrum? (laughs) And then I talk about sort of three of the most challenging emotions that I think trigger the most dysregulation in both our children and in us, which is anger, shame, and fear slash anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's the course. And I think when I often will say like, that's like the first step I want people to know when I do therapy with them or parenting support with them, because if they get, if they have that down, if your kid's having tantrums and you can learn that bit of information, the rest of the work is a lot easier when we're actually targeting like, okay, well, how is it playing out with your child? And what are the exact scenarios that are going on? Like we can then troubleshoot, but you have this sort of foundational baseline knowledge. And so I call it the, I called the course, the science of tantrums. And it's, it's like, I'm just, I'm happy that it exists because I feel like I, it's hard to explain it over and over and over again. And I, and it's like, I just feel like, okay, just, just, the just listen to yeah. this. <laughs> there, just for everybody who's listening, I, I will add that link to the show notes and links to your resources as well, whatever we mentioned today. Um, so oh, they can have easy you. access. Yeah. Um, amazing. I, I don't remember how we got into tantrums, but I, I do remember that I wanted to make sure that a parent knows how to assess their environment right now um, when it comes to attachment. So how can they, what sort of signs should they be looking for? You spoke about the park, but just in case a parent's wondering, you know, my four-year-old never lets go of my leg when somebody is new, or my four-year-old very easily goes out with a stranger and they want to start thinking about those little moments. Like what should yeah. they be thinking of? So that's actually probably more about temperament than attachment, mm. right? Like kids who are slower to warm up can be securely attached. Kids who are very gregarious can be securely attached. It's, it's, that's not actually really what attachment is measuring, Mm -hmm. right? Attachment really is referring simply to how much does this child believe that their caregiver is going to meet their needs most of the time, that they're a safe, trustworthy presence in their life who is going to keep them safe. And it's consistent. Right. Yes. They want their, and so yeah. exactly. And the consistency is key. And that, again, that doesn't mean we have to get it right all no. the time. We do not have to be consistently perfect. Yes. True. We need to be consistently good enough. Yes. Hmm. Um, and that can like manifest itself in lots of different ways. Right. Like we actually measure attachment security less by a child's response to a separation and more by a child's response to a reunification hmm. with the parent. Hmm. Does the child went when a child separates from their parents, almost, you know, very, very typically they will be distressed. 
And very typically when the parent comes back, they will be able to be soothed by the parent. That doesn't mean all the time. Because I you know, know parents are thinking, su- it. <laughs> what about yesterday? <laughs> I did some right. Court. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, some of the time, mm-hmm. generally, <laughs> does your kid tend to settle eventually when they reunite with you? Um, that doesn't mean that like a kid has to like run to you and meet and like roll into your in the nook in your <laughs> shoulder and just like be like completely at peace. They can be agitated, distressed. They can be distracted. You know, the, all of there's so many elements that go into a child's response when we reunite. Are they super tired? Are they super hungry? Are they super, did they have a really long day at school? And maybe they're having like restraint collapse, which is kind of the, those like after school tantrums, those melt, you know, like where they've been holding it in all day. And then they (laughs) see you, their safe person. And it just comes all out and it's a hot mess. Parents (laughs) will see that and they'll be like, Oh, we're, you know, we're not securely attached. And that's not true. It's actually a child saving their ugliest, messiest Mm. Self for you means they think you're pretty safe. So it's very difficult actually to assess attachment security. Mm. And we really can't do it actually all that well. Um, I mean, we we could do it in these like very um, controlled scientific laboratory experiments, but how often does that play out in real life? Like we don't really have these yeah. controlled experiment experience with, those, our, with our kids. There's a million variables that we're not controlling for when we're interacting with our children. So sometimes they're going to look like they're securely attached and sometimes they're going to look like they're not. And like, it's really about kind of general patterns, like what happens most of the time? What's the sort of long, like longitudinal picture that we're seeing? Um, And again, it's like, you can always reach out to a psychologist to help you or another therapist that specializes in this to help you figure it out. But short of like doing the strange situation laboratory experiment, we're not going to really ever totally know. And that's, that's actually okay. Like we don't need to know. We just can like work on increasing safety and trust and consistency. Mm -hmm. And chances are we'll, we'll write the ship. Now that we've had this discussion, I'm thinking back to our first question. Can we discipline our child and maintain that relationship with them? My answer is yes. <laughs> I'd love to yeah. hear your answer and and, and perhaps uh, a summary of everything and a guide for parents so that they can take this and and start a new day tomorrow. Yes. So a hundred percent. Yes. In fact, I would say that not disciplining our children or being very ambivalent about how we discipline our children can be far more anxiety provoking for a child, which is going to make it harder for them to feel that trust and security in our, like, we, it's hard for us to be that secure base if they don't know how we're going to respond. Yeah. And a lot of times I see this and I, again, even in myself, like, here's the thing that's really important too, is like, we talk about like permissive parenting, authoritarian parenting. We didn't get into that Mm. so much today, but you know, authoritative parenting is like high warmth, high expectation. That's sort of the sweet spot. Authoritarian is high expectation, but low warmth and author and permissive is high warmth, low expectation, right? To to be very overgeneralizing. But I think what parents don't realize is we move through these different parenting styles all the time. No one is ever a hundred percent one thing. And while the goal is to be authoritative, again, it's most of the time. I'm permissive sometimes with my kids. I'm probably, I'm authoritarian sometimes with my kids. On a bad day, yeah, it happens. Mm. Um, What I try to do, obviously, is for the most part, try to be both warm and have clear and consistent expectations with my own follow through. Um, I often will say like, if if you're saying something five times to your kid, you've said it four times too many. And I don't mean that. that they should follow us they should follow our instructions at one. Yeah. It's really about our behavior. If I'm asking my kid to do something a bunch of times and they're not doing it, they're actually showing me that they can't do it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to stop using the strategy of commanding and start a different strategy, maybe scaffolding or supporting. So if my kid, if I'm saying like, get your shoes on, get your shoes on, we're leaving, get your shoes on, get your shoes on, get your shoes on. And I see this a lot in general with permissive parenting or with being like saying something over and over and over and over and over again, and not actually initiating the consequence like the, Mm. ah, yes, 
we're doing yeah, this now. Or the threat without the follow through, right? Like, right. Don't do that, yeah. pa- what parents often do is they go, you know, they either negotiate, 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 oh, negotiate, yes. negotiate, yeah. and then they snap. Yes. They lose it and they get mad, understandably. Mm-hmm. If I have to tell you 10 times to put your shoes on and you're still not doing it, by the 10th time, I'm probably yelling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm probably pretty angry and dysregulated myself. Mm-hmm. But that's not really serving me. It's not getting me closer to my goal of getting out the door. It's not getting me closer to my bigger, probably overarching goal of like teaching my child a skill to put their shoes on and to listen and to stop whatever else they're doing. So I got to look at that and be like, my kid doesn't know. My kid in this moment isn't able to do this. That doesn't mean they're not usually able to do it. It might just mean in this moment, they're not able to do this. And I'm going to go in and I'm going to help them. I'm going to say, hey, I've asked you a bunch of times to get your shoes on and you're having a hard time doing it. Do you you need my help? Mm. You know what? It looks like you need my help. I'm going to help you. And then I'm going to put their shoes on Mm. and I'm going to, and they might not like that. Yeah. And I'm going to maybe carry them to the car crying and they might be communicating to me just how pissed they are that I made them put their shoes on and that we're leaving now. Um, But I think with permissive parenting too, you get into this, this sort of dance where you permit a behavior, permit a behavior, permit a behavior. And then you get increasingly more frustrated that, that you are not in control Mm -hmm. and you are maybe reading this as like, Oh God, they're defying me. And then you snap and you go over to this authoritarian spot of like, I'm yelling and I'm punishing and it, it's a hard place for a parent to feel effective. It makes us feel very helpless and very frustrated and kind of disheartened by the whole parenting. It it's makes true. parenting not so fun. Yeah. Cause you're always disciplining, right? You're always creating consequences. You're the bad guy. <laughs> that's, yeah. you know, that's what you feel like all day rather than like having a balance and everything. And it's hard. Right. And I think with the shoe example you gave, I could think about toys in our house and you, you get stuck. And I think instead of offering that tool, or like you said, putting the shoe on, you get so frustrated and you you either go super hard in terms of like consequence or boundary because you you've lost it or you do it yourself right it could be putting the toys away and they've learned they've learned at that point if mommy keeps saying it and we don't do it she'll do it <laughs> and we have yeah. to think about that yeah and that's why i think like we we all are moving around this spectrum of like you know warmth and expectation yeah. But I think having realistic expectations, developmentally appropriate expectations of our kids Mm. is part of this challenge, right? If I think that my four-year-old, my four-and-a-half-year-old son can always put his shoes on when I tell him to, I know my son is capable of physically putting his Mm. shoes on. He does it regularly. Um, I know my son is capable of following a directive a lot of the time. I know he's capable of this. But my having a developmentally appropriate expectation of him means I understand that he can't always do that because it requires executive functioning skills. And guess where executive functioning skills are housed? In our prefrontal yeah, exactly. cortex, that same part of the brain yeah. that goes offline when our child is dysregulated, mm-hmm. when our child's having any type of like intense emotional experience, or if they're really distracted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if our kid is hyper-focusing on something. On play. Let's say play and you have to leave <laughs> and they have to leave shifting set st- inhibiting. Like I'm going to stop one thing and move to another. Those are all executive functioning skills and they're challenging for a four and a half year old to always be able to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm one is having realistic developmentally appropriate expectations of our kids um, and knowing that their capabilities, their access to their skills shift very frequently. Two is I'm also going to have effective discipline strategies. It is not a fact. It is a discipline strategy to yell at my kid. Mm-hmm. It is not the most effective <laughs> discipline strategy because it's not actually, when I think about effective, it's about me achieving my goal, my goal mm-hmm. as the parent. My goal in this moment is to get my child to stop playing with their toys, get their shoes on and get in the car. I want to go. And so I also want to help my child move closer to being able to do that on their own, but also maybe they're not able to. So I'm going to scaffold. Mm. I'm going to get low and I'm going to get close. I'm going to maintain their emotion regulation because I don't want them to get dysregulated because I need them to do something. I need them to use their frontal lobes to get this task finished. And so I'm going to try to maintain regulation by using my own calm nervous system to communicate safety to them. If I get big and loud, I'm going to move them away from being able to do what I'm trying to get them to do. So I want to use this co-regulation 
to help them understand this is safe. This is challenging. I'm going to help you do this, but I have an agenda here and we're going to follow my lead now. And I also am going to accept that they may get very upset by me making them do this thing. And I'm not going to see that as a threat to my authority. Mm. I'm still going to just follow through on the thing. It's my job to keep to move my kid through the schedule of the day. It's my job to say, we're done with this and we're moving on to this now. Mm. I have to do that. I'm picturing the park right now as you were describing all of that because <laughs> yes. I, I sit back at the park sometimes and it's hard because you get it. I have three kids too, you know, and, and it's some will be happy, some won't. But what you just described is what I watch parents kind of do or struggle with when they're at the park and it's time to leave. And, you know, I've spoken about like, you know, giving a time, a countdown, and some parents tell me it doesn't work. Um, I've spoken about giving options, like go slide two more times or swing or I don't know, uh, jump on something three more times, but then we have to go. And and some parents still struggle with that, but there's a boundary. There's where, How do you balance that sort of transition that you were talking about, like playing and having to leave the house or the park? What, what can a parent do in that yeah. moment? I mean, it's hard. You want to set them up for success as much as possible, yeah. right? That's the preparation piece. Mm. That is the prevention, right? We do want to give them, you know, warning. We want to give them like concrete things. Like at the park, I'll always say you have time to do one more yeah, thing exactly. versus you have five yes. more minutes yeah. because that's more concrete and tangible than uh, minutes and time. Yeah. But I also have, in my mind, need to have realistic expectations that my child developmentally may not be able mm-hmm. to just stop and go. Because I'm asking them to do that and telling them that's the plan, I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. I'm preparing them. Preparing your, You can prepare your child and they will be able to do the transition. You can re- prepare your child and they won't be able to do sure. the transition. Mm-hmm. And I think I think parents get tripped up thinking, I've done my job. Now they need to do their job yes. and their job is to obey. Yes. And that I think is the challenging part. We want to teach our children to follow instruction, but we don't actually need to do that in the moment for them to learn that. Mm-hmm. I think what they need to learn is where the edges are. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what the limit is. I'm going to help you prepare for it as much as possible. And then when we get to that, that pivoting point, that, that, that crux of the moment where it's actually time to stop this and to go, I'm going to do that work. I, the parent, am going to help you stop what you're doing and go. That's my job. And you can tell me how upset you are that I am doing this. You can show me Mm -hmm. how upset you are that I'm doing this Mm -hmm. and I'm still going to do it. And I'm going to kind of like, you know, hold space for that. Keep things safe. I'm not going to let you hit me or kick me you know, but I am also going to allow you to melt down as I take you out of the park. And I think we have to get a little bit less afraid of the meltdown. And what people think about it, right? Yeah. Those public tantrums, they're hard. Yeah. But if we all start understanding that this is normal and the way that you've just described it is exactly it, where now you're setting that boundary, it's that frame that you're talking about. And we see somebody else going through that moment. It's not a bad parent. It's not a failure. It's it's, you've done what you have to do. And we see it as a failure sometimes because we do expect them to follow through and comply and be compliant because we gave them the countdown that we did. We did everything right. Right. It's we did it right. And they're failing on their end of the they're not holding up their end of the bargain, but they did not agree to this bargain. (laughs) And and the bargain is not realistic for them. Right. And it and this is not to say that a kid who usually can do it can always do it. You can have an eight-year-old who typically is very regulated and able to follow instructions, having a really bad day, and they have a total defiant meltdown moment at the park because they don't want to go. You do the same thing. And you say, you're having a really hard time. I'm going to help you. And I'm going to do, I'm going to hold that boundary and my kid can melt down. Even when they're eight, when it's like kind of not in line with their typical presentation. I'm still not going to get mad at them. I'm not going to say, act like a big kid, you know, like you're not a little kid right now. Don't, don't in this moment, their brain is simply offline. The the skills, the eight years of skills that they've built up that they usually have access to are not accessible Mm -hmm. to them in this moment. And we got to have empathy for that. Yeah. And and I think just to, before we finish our talk, first of all, I'm going to have to bring it back because I still think there's a lot to talk about. But when it comes to um, those big emotions, especially if it's like out of their usual kind of emotions, but also on the, the other side of that, like young kids, we shouldn't be um, 
disciplining emotions. And I want to say that because I think sometimes we tend to do that because we're frustrated, we're tired, we had a long day. And what you've been talking about is are the behaviors and that's what we're Mm -hmm. disciplining, but not, and compliance is not the ultimate goal from what you just explained, right? I think those are two things that are important for us to mention. Right. Absolutely. We don't need to discipline emotions because we don't actually want to teach them not to have emotions. We do want to discipline behaviors. And when I say discipline, I don't mean punish. Mm. I mean, teach them where the edges are, help them understand that we are going to, I'm not going to let you hit. If you keep hitting, if you hit, you're showing me you're not safe with your body. I'm going to help you calm your body down. I'm going to bring you over here to this quiet, less stimulating place, this private spot. And I'm going to sit with you until you can be calm again, right? That's co-regulation. That's taking control of the environment. That's discipline. Exactly. Um, Later, when they're frontal lobes are back online when they're calm, connected, maybe at the, you know, another time. And it could be immediately after, if I see that they've come, they're really back to themselves, or it can be like hours or even a day later, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to debrief. Mm -hmm. I call it the debrief and I'm going to go over it with them. Not in a, not in a punitive way. Again, I'm going to say like, Hey, you were having a really hard time at the park and it was time to go when you were hitting and I can't let you hit. That's not safe. What can you do? You were feeling really mad. First, I'll be curious. Like what, what was going on for you that you were feeling so mad? Why did it feel so hard to leave the park? See if they can help us gain some insight into why it was so challenging. It's going to give us a lot of potential information for then helping them problem solve, right? We talk about sometimes the ABCs of behavior, the antecedent, the behavior, and the consequence. We got to get clear on that antecedent. What made them, what, what happened first that led to the behavior? Kids don't just hit for no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, they were feeling angry. Okay. When you're feeling angry, what else can you do? Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you're, you're helping them connect the dots. You're helping them problem solve. That's discipline. Mm-hmm. Discipline also doesn't have to happen in the moment. Really? You can oh. discipline a behavior. We're teaching, mm-hmm. we're teaching coping skills, communication skills, problem solving skills. All of that can happen outside mm-hmm. of the heat of the moment and you're still teaching and disciplining mm-hmm. so that your child is able to not engage in that behavior in the future. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you have to do this a bunch of times before they really internalize this skill and practice it. But yes, we could talk about this for literally forever. <laughs> I love this stuff. And it's, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's, I, this is hard. a harder, yeah. more challenging, more effortful way to parent Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I believe it's worth it. Mm, I love that. And the science sort of backs that up. Yes, exactly. I love that everything you've spoken about are things that we cover through Kirsten Ron because there's so much research around it because it's out there. We're just trying to, through your account and everybody else's accounts, we're trying to show people like what's out there and how they could apply it. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. And sometimes, you know, what I struggle Mm -hmm. with is I'll summarize an article and it's just a summary, but there's not always a here's what to do kind of thing. It's more of yeah. here's the information and see how it could apply to how you're parenting. And that's not always right. easy. Yeah, no, <laughs> I it's know. not. And there isn't like a rule book and there is nuance. But typically, if you want like a takeaway from like what you could actually do, it really starts with kind of looking at our own regulation and our own ability to have mm-hmm. like realistic, developmentally appropriate expectations of our child in the moment and our own behavioral follow through. Like we got to get really clear on what's our job and what's not our job and what's our job and what's our child's job. And so like, if we have a better, a more accurate understanding of like what my job is, my job is not to like stop all behaviors at all costs. Mm -hmm. My job is to help a child learn about the behaviors. Why did you have that behavior? What were, what does that, what was the fallout from that? What, what did that behavior result in? What are some ways that you can prevent that behavior in the future? Yeah. Like that's really the goal. And so that's when I say effective discipline means kind of how do we do that? That's the effective piece. How can uh, people learn from you? I know you have your podcast. Tell us what it's called and and how can we find you online? Yeah. So I have a podcast called Securely Attached. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about (laughs) secure attachment. Um, 
and parenting and child development and maternal and parental mental health mm-hmm. a lot. That's a big, I, I kind of feel like I want to have a conversation always at the intersection of the two of like child well-being and parental well-being, yes. because I think sometimes people over-focus on one mm-hmm. at the expense of the other. Mm-hmm. And like, we have to be able to look at the spaces where we're honoring both. And that's what I really strive to do on my podcast mm-hmm. and just in general and on my Instagram posts and stuff. Um, so you can follow at Dr. Sarah Bren on Instagram. And um, if you are interested in like clinical support, I have a group practice in Pelham, New York. Um, and we, we do parent coaching nationally. We do therapy interventions in New York state. So you go to upsurebren.com to learn more about the work that I do with families and, and with parents and children. Um, and then I have this tantrum course that we talked about a little bit. It's called the science of tantrums. Mm-hmm. Find that on my website, drsarahbren.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And I think you need to come back and talk about attachment only. <laughs> it's such a big topic. And it. going back to ourselves as parents too, I think that's some something that we might not think back in terms of like what it looked like and what, you know, in terms of what our relationship was with our child and we don't, re- uh, with our parent, and we don't realize how much it impacts our relationships with people around us. I'd yes. love to have that discussion. You know, last night, funny enough, my husband was listening to Shameless. I haven't watched the series, but it was an episode where there's this girl, I believe was his daughter, and she tells her sister or sister-in-law, I wish I can have like a good relationship. I can't find a partner. I can't find somebody to be with. And her sister says, that's dad's fault. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought about our conversation today and I was like, this is exactly what we need to talk about. We need to understand attachment and how that, you know, um, has an impact on on what even arguing or communication with our partners, right? It's so huge as a topic. Yes. Yeah. All our relationships, yes. our ch- parent-child relationship, our relationship with our partners, yes. our romantic relationships, yeah. our relationship with our friends, these are all informed by that blueprint, yes. right? That we were talking about earlier, yeah. that blueprint that is formed by those initial early attachment styles. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we are, again, like destined and have no, it's like, you know, written in stone and we can never break out oh. of this blueprint, <laughs> but we have to have a way to edit the blueprint. Yes. If we want to change the attachment patterns. That's it. And That's the title of our, of our next podcast episode together. We're di- I can't yes. let you go. I clearly want to talk to you a lot more. Thank <laughs> you for joining me. And thank you to everybody for listening to the Curious Non podcast. Again, you can rate it on iTunes, leave a review, follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron, or email me at info at curious Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, Sarah. Bye. <laughs>